Please be seated. And let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that that is true today and every day. That ultimately, no matter what battles we face, no matter which struggles we give into, no matter which sins that we fall prey to, Christ is ours forevermore. And with Christ comes the keys to your city, Lord, where there will be no more pain, no more death, no more destruction, no more, no more revenge. But there will be grace and peace and mercy. Help us now, Father, we pray to receive this word tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again to Epiphany. It's good to have you here tonight. We, over the last number of weeks, have been looking at the attributes of God, which is just another way of saying the characteristics of God. And the reason we've done that is really pretty simple. It's it, the more we have an accurate idea of who God actually is, the less prone we are to err or, uh, and I don't just mean um, err and, you know, sinning or, or something like that, but err in our thoughts about him. And the, the more accurate our thoughts about him are, that means the more accurately we're able to worship him, the more accurately we're able to talk about him, the more confident we are in our knowledge of him. And so it's, a, it's good to go through these attributes. And tonight we're going to be talking about the attribute of his goodness. And to do that, first and foremost, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, a passage that's probably very familiar to, uh, to some of you. It's certainly a popular passage in our culture, even with those outside of the church. This is one of those striking passages of Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount. And it reads like this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors is another way of saying like sinners, the bad guys. Do not even the bad guys do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. End of reading. I would imagine most of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan at some point in your life. If you haven't, let me just briefly summarize uh, Private Ryan, he is the brother of two uh, other brothers already lost in World War II, or maybe it's actually three, but, but uh, a whole family of brothers have already been killed, and he's the last one, and in the story he's gone missing, but is thought to be alive. He's thought to be uh, still out in the field somewhere. And so a general back home takes an interest in this soldier and sets up a small unit of men led by Captain John Miller to go find him. But of course, not without a cost. I mean, they're going into the battlefield where this is happening. And, uh, and Captain Miller, uh, by the end of it, is, is shot and about to lose his life. And as Miller lay dying, Private Ryan is looking at him 
And Miller says these words to this man, to say to Private Ryan after he's been rescued and Miller has given his life for him. Miller looks at him and says, earn this. Earn everything that's been done for you. Earn this. The next scene, we see Private Ryan some 50 years later standing by John Miller's grave. And his memory is so vivid in his mind that that exhortation keeps on going through his head over and over and over again. Earn this. And he turns to his wife in this powerful, powerful scene and asks her, Am I a good man? Have I led a good life? What do you think of when you think of the word goodness? Maybe you think of someone who strictly follows all the rules, you know, a goody-goody. That's a phrase. Maybe you think in terms of quality, you know, good being used as a synonym for that word, something that's quality is good. Maybe you think in terms of contentment, you know, somebody says, how you doing? And you say, good, doing good. Although grammatically, it should be well, by the way. <clears throat> But goodness is, is one of those words where we obviously, we know what it means when we hear it or say it. Um, but, but when we try and define it, it can actually be a little slippery. Like it, it can maybe not necessarily come right out with it. Um, but I like the way A.W. Tozer defines goodness when it comes to God. He says it this way. He says, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward human beings. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes pleasure in the happiness of his people. End quote. I like that. It sounds good to me. So by that definition of goodness, there is no passage, I think, that so clearly illustrates God's goodness than the passage we just read from Matthew chapter 5. And I think um, that what we see is that God is absolutely good. And therefore the commands within it are given to us because by them we are shown what it is to look like him. Or the way Jesus puts it, uh, to be sons or daughters of the Father. When these things are happening in a person's life, we show ourselves to be like God, good like God. So, so how does God's goodness manifest itself? That's what we're going to talk about. How does it reveal itself? And I think the first thing we see in the passage, if you want to look down at your bulletin, is it manifests itself in love for his enemies. It manifests itself in, his, in love for his enemies. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. That is, in fact, the action of God on our behalf. It's true. Romans 5 specifically states it this way. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. We've been reconciled to God by his death. This is the sort of love that I think has to be divorced from the sometimes romantic notion of love that is very prevalent in, in our culture. The, the, the hyper-feeling, emotional 
love. Because by definition, if you're someone's enemy, then you're not exactly feeling warm fuzzies toward them. You're not exactly uh, whispering sweet nothings into their ear. You might be whispering something else into your ear if they got, you got close enough to them, but not sweet nothings. In this case, love is going to be primarily a discipline game. You're going to make yourself love someone with your words and actions, not based on how you feel. You're going to act on their behalf for their benefit. Or as I think about it from God's perspective, even though God's creation has earned his anger for their sin, he thinks of them with benevolence and mercy. I think back to the picture God gives in the prophet Hosea. Any of you ever read the book of Hosea? Don't feel bad if you haven't, but it's a strange book. It really is. It's a little odd. But the way that God presents himself in this book is very unique because, um, frankly, I don't know how else to put it. If you read it, you'll see it. God presents himself like a jilted lover. He compares himself to this prophet Hosea who is married to a prostitute. And this prostitute is continually cheating on Hosea with other men, obviously. It's her job. And Hosea says, just like, or God says, just like his prophet, that's the way my relationship is with these people of mine. They keep on, they keep on running away from me to go be with other gods. And so on the one hand, you'll see God say things like, I am going to take you out. I'm so sick of this. I'm so done with it. I'm done with you. Our relationship is over. You know, like they have a big blow-up fight. And then in the very next verse, you'll see him say things like this. But how can I? I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. How can I give you up? That's God's love for his enemies. That reality that God has with his creation as his enemies, we are called to remember with our enemies too. Because just like you, they were created in his image. And just like you, they're sinners. And just like you, yes, even them, Christ died for too. I read an example of this a while back. I came across a series of letters from an anonymous Christian man named Roger. I don't know who he is. And Roger spent much time writing to a serial killing, a serial killer named Wesley Allen Dodd, shortly before Wesley Allen Dodd would be executed by the state of Washington. And near the beginning of his letter, Roger states his purpose for writing the letter to this killer that he had only seen on TV. He says, quote, because of the love of Christ, I care about you and love you. If you have any glimpse of hope left in you, take a couple minutes to listen to what I have to say. And from that point on, Roger goes on to declare very boldly to Wesley the gospel, imploring him to repent and believe in Jesus so that he might be saved forever. Five days later... Roger received a letter back from this convicted serial killer. 
He explains in the letter that he hadn't been very public about his religious beliefs because he believed his lawyers would try and use it to save his life, but he believed he actually deserved to pay the punishment for his crimes, and he didn't want to be spared at all. But he goes on to say that he's done quite a lot, bit of Bible study and has become convinced that it's the Word of God. And then he writes this. He says, quote, this is his quote. I was baptized on July 16th. Every defense attorney I've ever worked with has lied more times than I could believe. I don't care about any attorney in any court in this planet. On July 16th, the Lord Jesus Christ became my attorney in the court of heaven. And he has assured me. I will receive a sentence of eternal life and that he's preparing a place for me right now. <clears throat> Love for enemies. Even the worst kind. That's the goodness of God. Second, there's prayer for your enemies too. There's prayer for his enemies. Look at that. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Have you ever tried praying for someone that you're really upset with? I mean, I, 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 I've done it many times, but it's always initially very difficult. My wife, Missy, is very good. Like, when I'm upset about something, or I'm upset at a person, and I'm venting to her, my wife is the first one. I mean, right then, she'll say, Honey, you should pray for him. And you know what my initial response is? No. No. She's like, Honey, you're a pastor. I'm like, so what? You know, like... <laughs> Like, I don't want to pray for that guy. You know, he bugged me. I'm angry with him. I don't want... No, he deserves to have me just sit here and stew at him for a little while longer. But here's what happens. Here's what happens if you pray for your enemies. And this is why I resist doing it. Because as you begin praying, you might start off with, like, gritted teeth, like, Oh, Lord, smite my enemies. But by the end of it, you're like, And, Lord, you know, I was your enemy, too, but you were gracious to me. Please be gracious to them. Dang it, he changed me again, you know. In Scripture, we're told that, as a matter of fact, just as we're called to pray for our enemies, that Jesus Christ is constantly praying for us. Did you know that? The word in the New Testament is intercession, that Jesus has been praying for you. Right now, right now, Jesus is praying for you, you who once were his enemies. The word intercessor just means negotiator. So in Isaiah, the prophet, we read, he makes intercession for transgressors, for sinners, for people that are his enemies, for people that were hurting him. In John's gospel, just before Jesus is going to his cross, we overhear him praying to his father for those who would believe in his name, interceding on their behalf. And as Jesus has the nails pounded into his hands and is hoisted upon the cross, what is he doing? interceding for the very people pounding those nails in saying over and over in the Greek it's over and over again Father forgive them for they know not what they are doing God's goodness is displayed in something so unnatural for us that in the midst of suffering and pain at the hands of the enemy prayer for the enemy is going up that's the goodness of God. God also shows his goodness in giving to his enemies. Look at the text. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God sends blessing on everyone, the evil and the good alike. 
Sometimes, actually, the Bible writers lament this fact. Have you ever lamented that? Why is that crook getting ahead? Why is that jerk that I'm working with seeming to, you know, he doesn't deserve to get the promotion, but he's getting the promotion and I'm not. I'm not getting noticed even though I'm working constantly. The Bible writers, the psalmists, are constantly talking about this, complaining to God. It's in their prayers to him. And yet, it's interesting, even as the psalmist points out the injustice of it all, we also hear that God is the one, yes, who gives good gifts to the evil and the good, the rain on the just and the unjust. Yeah. Yeah. It's his goodness that does that. The very fact that any of us are breathing right now, that's gift from him. The very fact that any of them out there, anybody who might not like the church at all are breathing right now, same thing, gift from above. The very fact that food tastes good is gift. He didn't have to make it that way. He could have made it drab all the time. If we wanted God to make only rain fall on the good, then there'd never be rain. If we wanted God to only make the righteous food taste better, then all the food would taste bad. So God sends his rain on the just and the unjust, and this is a great example of his goodness. I saw this uh, illustration, I think, of, of this kind of goodness a while back in a video by Philip Yancey. Uh, Ann Spangler was the head of a pregnancy counseling center in, in Michigan, and because it was close to a local university, um, the, there was protests outside of this pregnancy center. The, there was people at this university that just really did not like what they were doing and were very much opposed to them. And it seemed with each protest, things got more and more heated and more angry and both sides were arguing until one day a co-worker of Anne's suggested doing something radically different. Instead of arguing back and forth about pro-life and pro-choice and this and that, you know, and it, it just going, instead one of the workers said, why don't we share with them our coffee and donuts today? So sure enough, they loaded up trays filled with coffee and donuts and made their way out to the protesters. And some of the protesters initially were not going to take those donuts. Like, mm -mm. they wanted to stay angry and upset about this. But, but the vast majority of the protesters, initially, though not sure how to respond, did indeed take what was offered to them. And this is what Ann said. Ann said, you know, when they received this gift from us, it totally disarmed them. And instead of yelling at each other, conversations began to take place. So why does God do all this good for his enemies? Why does he do all showering the rain, you know, on the just and the unjust? Well, in Acts 17, Paul is speaking to a group of philosopher, philosophers in Athens. And in his speech explaining why God has acted the way he has throughout history, he says this, quote, 
He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Why? Why all this good? Why has he sustained them? Quote, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Do you hear that? The reason God displays his goodness to his enemies, prayer for his enemies, love for his enemies, giving to his enemies, is that they might be brought to a place where they acknowledge him and repent. Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that leads someone to repentance. The goal of all of it is that we today might again turn toward him, forsaking our sins and worship him for his goodness. I'm reminded of one atheist who converted to Christianity fairly recently. He said, I got tired of being an atheist because I had no one to thank. There's this recognition, like, I, I, there's a lot of good things. There's a lot of good things in life. Even in the midst of suffering and difficulty and challenge, there's a lot of good things. Now there's someone to thank. So Jesus says, we're called to live in the same way. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Frankly, there's nothing that testifies to the power of Christ more in this world than when God uses us to, to display that same kind of goodness. You're never, you're never going to display Christ more than when you love your enemy. It's never going, there's nothing more Christ-like than forgiving someone who you have every right to be angry at who you have every right to take vengeance upon. There is nothing more Christ-like. That's the way God will in turn display his goodness through you. And I don't know uh, most of your situations. I don't know if you can think of a person in your mind that you're like, this is an enemy. This is somebody that I'm angry with right now. But as we close here and we prepare to go to the table to get sort of fuel for our faith, to get the body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins again, <clears throat> why don't we just take a moment to pray for our enemies? Why don't we lift them up right now? And if there's somebody that comes into your mind as we're praying for your enemies, why don't you pray for them specifically right now. Let's do that. Let's bow and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you're good. And your goodness is most displayed in your compassion and benevolence and love towards us who have all been and were born your enemies. Father, each of us in turn then have had people that have been difficult for us to some degree or another. Maybe we don't think of somebody as an enemy, but we definitely have people that we think of as nuisances. We have people that really irritate us 
that really get under our skin, that we find hard to love. So my prayer, Lord God, as we go to the table now and are reminded of all of what you did in order to provide forgiveness and righteousness for us, as we receive that righteousness for us, I pray that you would then in turn by your spirit give us the ability to love those people that are hard to love, to pray for those people that are hard to pray for, and to even be so bold as to give to those people that we naturally want to take from. And by doing so, so let our good works shine before others that when others see them, they glorify you, our Father in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go to the table, we're going to take an offering.